Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Appreciate that prayer, Brother Leon. I'm going to be back in uh, 1 Timothy. We've been going through the book of 1 Timothy, and I'm going to try to step us through 1 Timothy chapter 3. But before we get there, I want to make a couple of observations from elsewhere in the Scripture. I want to talk about service and servants. I made mention when I was speaking of this songbook and how many of these things we've learned that if you didn't come to church, you were not a partaker of the blessing of having learned so many of those songs. I think it was Groucho Marx that said something like, you know, 95% of life is you're graded on attendance. There's a whole lot in life that's just about showing up. And if you don't show up, you miss out on a lot. And you know what? It's very hard to be a servant and not show up. Now, we live in an age where that might be contested by some. You might say, well, you know, we're in a modern era where as long as you've got the Internet, I mean, I personally don't have to show up to work anymore, at least at a physical location. I have to show up on the Internet and be on meetings, and there's an office hours and those sorts of things. But it dawned on me that maybe that modern invention in this modern turn of affairs might lead someone to think that showing up is not that important. But the Lord's church is an assembly, and that means we actually get together physically. I've made comments in other sermons where I've said the internet is not the church. Facebook is not the church. You might get a blessing from it. You might read things on the internet that you find spiritually edifying, and that's great to the extent that it's good and edifying. I'm, I'm glad to have that. But it's not the church, and it's not an assembly. The Lord's people assemble together, and if you're going to serve in the Lord's house, attendance is incredibly important. And you've got to be here to participate. Now, it's amazing to me how people bristle at that in the context of church. And people will get really agitated about that in church. But if you said, well, if you're going to serve at work, you're going to have to show up to work. You're going to have to show up and do the work that's at your job. Now, people get that, like, I'm going to not show up. Well, if I do that too many times, I'm going to get fired, right? Why are you going to get fired? Because you're of no service to that company, if that's the attitude towards it. So this idea of showing up is incredibly important. But those who show up and want to serve in the Lord's house, they're really a miracle. Have you really stopped and thought about how having the desire to serve God in your life is a miracle. It's not something you have naturally. You're not so good by your human nature that you just improved upon yourself to such an extent that you said, I now want to go serve God. You don't have that by nature. So whatever inclination you have, sincere inclination to serve God in your life, is indicative of a miracle that's been worked in your heart such that you would have that inclination. A natural man does not have it, and you do. Everyone who wants to serve the Lord is a miracle. One of the first things I ever preached on when I started speaking in the church was found in Matthew chapter 3, and I want to look at it briefly here. This is something that struck me on my journey on the way to the Old Baptist Church. 
And it still remains very important to me. Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 5. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This is speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. You see, John the Baptist was looking for a sincere repentance among people to receive his baptism. This was not just some mere religious practice where, you know, if you want to do it, it's cool. Just show up. It seems to be the popular thing to do. Everybody's doing it. I'm going to go do it too. John the Baptist is looking for more than this. He's talking about how they baptized in the Jordan and people were confessing their sins. These are not bragging in their sins. This is a sincere, heartfelt look at one's own life and saying, you know, I mean, I'm just a sinner. I need to be cleansed of my sins. I need to repent of my sins. I need to turn away from them. And I always found John the Baptist's remarks here uh, interesting. I kind of thought of it as a, as a really good uh, comeback, if you will, to respond to these people who are coming to him in insincerity. He says, For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. He's saying... Your national lineage, the fact you can trace your family back to Abraham, that's got nothing to do with the matter. It's got nothing to do with it. And Jewish people really hung up on that. It was all about their race, their religious heritage, their national heritage. And they say, well, I know Abraham is my father. If you trace it back far enough, that was really important to him. And he's saying, this is really not what it's about. He makes this statement. God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And I always thought John the Baptist was really putting them on him. He's like, God could come down here and work a miracle. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your national heritage to save people and to convict them of their sins or any of those things. And that's certainly true. But the thing that dawned on me, and I think was very important in my journey to the old Baptist church, was the realization that that's what God always does. Anyone who has a sincere desire to serve the Lord came into this world in a state of total depravity, just as cold as a stone to spiritual things. And if you have that sincere desire to serve the Lord, He has raised you up as a stone and made you a child of Abraham by faith. That is a remarkable thing. And if you are one of those who have that desire and you have faith in your heart, you're what he was talking about. God raises up stony men and gives them life and gives them a desire for the Lord, gives them the fruit of the Spirit, and he saves them. But these men are to be servants. Would you say we have enough servants? Turn over to Luke chapter 10. I've mentioned this in recent weeks and probably should be mentioning it more. Luke chapter 10, we see after these things the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. 
Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now those laborers are servants. They're people who serve in the Lord's house. I don't think they're all in this context. Maybe you might primarily say he's talking about elders who would go out and do gospel ministry. But I, I don't think it has to be confined to that. I think there's a lot of labor in the Lord's house and in the kingdom of God. And it's not all in the form of just standing up and preaching and doing the things that we typically associate with being an elder. There's a lot of service and a lot of labor. There's a lot of ministry that takes place just between God's people, service to one another. That's labors in the vineyard and very important to the kingdom of God. That's service to the kingdom. But interesting here is that the Lord says, Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. That's something God specifically tells us to pray for. Now, when I started at the church through various periods of time, we've kind of we've had times when we had fewer song leaders. I know Elder Phelan would talk about a time when very few song leaders, and we would pray for that to be brought up in the church. And we've been blessed in that. We've had We've seen men, men come up and, and um, get involved and, and lead song services. So the Lord blessed that prayer. I've mentioned before that we have, we have a deacon gap in the church right now. And I want to call upon the church to be praying that God would raise up laborers for this work. He has done it before. He told us to pray for it. This is actually the solution to the problem. He's saying there aren't enough laborers and the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of work to do, plenty of work to do. And you need to be praying for the laborers. We need those servants, right? I want to call upon you all to be praying for that. In fact, I want to pray for it right now. I'm going to ask Brother Sonny Bonner if he would just pray for the Lord to raise up men and laborers for his harvest among us right now. Let's bow our heads and pray about that. I appreciate that affirmation of unworthiness. Anyone who has endeavored to serve the Lord in any capacity, I think, feels that from time to time. We're not worthy. We're blessed to be able to do this work. And I also appreciate Brother Sonny's willingness to not place that on someone else. One of the biggest problems we have, we live in a society now that we outsource everything. We think, I'll get somebody else to do that. We need some people to do this work. Let's go find the people to do this work. Sometimes the answer is to not remove yourself from the consideration set and to say, you know what, there's a work that needs to be done. I need to show up with some work gloves and be ready to do the work. As we pray for this, and I want to continue to call on you all to be praying for this for the church and for the kingdom of God, I want you to also be considering, as Brother Sonny did, how can I be someone who is serving more and how can I be a partaker in that service? Very important. The Lord said to pray for it, and we've prayed for it. I feel like if we don't do anything else today that's profitable, that was profitable, and I want to call on you to continue in those prayers. As we return to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll get into this matter of some of what I would say are the official roles of service in the church. We'll talk about that matter a little bit. And this is Paul speaking to Timothy and giving him some guidance on the matter. Chapter 3 says, This is a true saying, if a man desireth the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. It's a good thing for someone to be desirous 
of the office of bishop. Now, the, the term bishop is not one that we in the Old Baptist Church use very much, but it is a perfectly legitimate and biblical term, right. essentially synonymous with the term elder. We use the term elder for those who are in that office in the church, I think in no small degree because it's less confusing than using bishop. Other orders use the term bishop a lot, and it tends to be associated with some of those other orders. Elder is a perfectly legitimate term as well, and we tend to do that. But if you hear someone saying, well, this is Bishop Salmons or Bishop Phelan, that might strike your ear in a somewhat of an odd way, but it's a legitimate biblical term. Uh, we prefer the term elder just as a matter of custom. So I want to make sure everybody knew that. But it's talking about the office of elder here. It's talking about a bishop or an elder in the church. And if a man desires this office, it's a good work. It's a good thing to desire. Now, it is possible to desire this work and to not be equipped for the work. So the desire is one thing, and it's a good thing. I mean, take an example of someone who has really no communication skills or they just don't have the things, they don't have the interpersonal skills that might be very helpful for a bishop. Someone might be like that, and they might still have the desire to want to do that work. And that's a good work and a good desire, but it does not necessarily mean they're equipped for that work. You know, I played baseball a lot as a kid. I'd have loved to have been a major league baseball player. I had a desire for that, and I suppose that is a good desire to have if you want to accomplish something in sports. I want to be a major league baseball player. That's fine. However, I was not remotely equipped to the task. So there is a distinction between the desire and being equipped for that, and it talks a little bit about he goes into a little bit of some of the uh, qualifications for being in that office. By the way, it is referred to as an office, right? It is an official thing that you enter into. It's not a casual thing where someone just says, now I'm declaring myself an elder or declaring myself the preacher. There's something official in the matter that is uh, recognized by the church. It is definitely a call of God, but it should be officially recognized by the church. Verse 2, he says, A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Now, when this says blameless, it is not speaking of sinless perfection. Otherwise, that unworthiness to which Brother Sonny made reference would disqualify anyone from holding the office. No one is utterly blameless in the matter of sin, but it's talking about as a matter of your public reputation before others. This person, as we look at his life, we don't see something here that we can accuse him of. He's not a practitioner of some profligate sin that would bring contempt upon the church. He's blameless in that respect. It doesn't mean... You know, I, he did this one thing one time and it made me angry. And he, he was a little bit short here with me or he didn't give me the appropriate amount of time. And I feel like that was inconsiderate. There's any number of blames that you could heap upon a man who's in this office that, that this is not speaking about. They're not blameless in that sense. They're blameless in the sense of living a life that doesn't bring a public reproach as a result of their behavior. 
Husband of one wife, that's talking about, you know, not having, being married to multiple women, which was not, uh, you know, in, in these times was not unheard of. Vigilant, keeping an eye on things, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. When it comes to apt to teach, it has been my experience among those who I believe are called that when it says apt to teach, it doesn't simply mean that they have the capability of teaching, like they have knowledge and they're able to impart it. I think, I think of it more like when I've seen these men, you just about can't keep them from teaching is what I, the way I see it. Like they're looking for opportunities to step into a conversation and comment about it and and try to refine what's being said there or better clarify something is being said. The Bible talks about prophets having this fire shut up in their bones, right? There's kind of a something in me I've got to get it out. And I know Elder Phelan can relate to this. And, and all the elders I know, they, they have almost a sense of urgency to want to address spiritual matters. And at times they become impatient with situations where you're not dealing with spiritual matters. You're sitting around talking about golf or fishing or whatever. And that stuff is fine. They, they generally like to do that too. But there's a point at which, okay, there's only so much of that we can talk about. You know, I, want, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with elders where we're just sitting around or we're talking on the phone. And I might start with, you know, the weather's been hot down here. And it, there's almost a sense of urgency on the other end of the line where they say something, you know, I was reading in Jeremiah the other day, and I, would you turn to that? Let's look at that. I want to read you that. What do you think about this? And, you know, I, I, I realize that this relates to this thing said over here. They're apt to go there. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's not just they know it and they have the skills to be able to impart it. They're apt to go there with you, even if you're just talking about how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. There's an inclination, an unction to want to teach the Word of God, and you're going to have a hard time reining them in on it. It's not something they can easily shut off because it is an unction, and it's something they should do. So I think that's something to look toward. It's actually one of the things I've seen in uh, Brother Luke. I saw it a long time ago before he ever had any sense that uh, he might be called to the ministry. Years ago, when, when I was preaching down there twice a month at Macedonia, I would preach and he would kind of sit at the back and occasionally he'd come up and talk to me. But I would, on a fairly regular occasion, I would get some kind of little text message from him. And it was asking something about something in the middle of a sermon where I said something. And the first thing I noticed is this person's paying attention. Like, Many people who had attended those services probably would not have remembered the thing that he's bringing out. So he's listening. Second of all, he's very curious about it. He wants to know more about it. And he's taking the initiative to reach out and talk about it. And we would have these spiritual conversations about things. And that, that has continued on through text messages and phone messages over the year. And I can relate to it. I could see it in him and recognize a season in my life that was very similar for me. So there's an unction or an urge to want to get into this and teach things and learn things. And um, I just call that to your attention. Continue on, not given to wine 
no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. So someone in this office can't be a drunk, can't be a, someone who's, it doesn't mean they can't ever drink anything, but it's talking about you've got to be someone who, it doesn't have some issue with this substance, if you will. No strikers, not quick to fight people, not greedy of filthy lucre. We talked uh, a while back about covetousness and how prevalent this is. This is a big problem. It's one of the things that drives some in ministry to make certain ministerial decisions. If I make this decision, build this facility, do this type of advertising, do this type of service, I'm going to have 2,000 people showing up here. And that's just that much more money. And instead of having a typical small New Testament church model, we're going to have thousands of people. We're going to set up a corporate model. And it's, it's essentially a pyramid scheme. Some of those people are greedy for filthy lucre. It just comes with the territory. But we're supposed to be not, supposed to not have people like that in those positions. But patient. And this is very difficult. Patient is really very important. I think one of the things that challenges people in the role of bishop or elder in the realm of patience is that they may become so schooled in certain truths that they're very familiar with them, they seem like they're second nature, and it's easy to lose sight of a time in your own life where you didn't understand that stuff either. Right? So now it's like this is old hat, told depravity, particular redemption, election before the foundation of the world. I mean, it's like, why are we even talking about this? We all agree with this. We know that. Why do I have to spend a lot of time explaining it? Can I just point you to Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 6 and be done with it? You can become so familiar with the truth that you lose sight of how unfamiliar you once were with the truth and how long of a path the Lord took you on to get you to the place where you are rooted in the truth the way you are today. That situation can breed impatience in the minds of God's elders. So we're reminded repeatedly by Paul that we must be patient. You have to realize it's not a one and done. If someone comes to you and wants to understand election or predestination and you give them some verses and you talk to them, and it's not a one and done. You're not going to point them to a couple of verses and then they get it and they go on. Many of those people have been pickled in false doctrine for 20, 30, 40 years and it's hard to get all the green out of their system. It just soaks in. That requires patience and it requires repetition. I've been asked at times, why are you repeating this again? Why are you bringing this up again? Because it's needful. And repetition is very important. Patient repetition, going over it and over it and over it again. I mean, my secular job works in marketing, and they, they talk sometimes about the, there's different people have, talk about it in different ways, but the rule of seven or the rule of 13, the rule of five, these sorts of things. If you're trying to run an organization just in a secular world or you're trying to put a marketing message out there, you don't just buy one ad, put it on a TV screen, and it pops up once, and then people run out and buy your stuff. They have to hear it five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Database marketing actually goes in and as it's trying to solicit people to buy certain things, they keep track of how many times they've touched you. And there's a point at which they say, well, you know, there's, there's a point of diminishing utility on putting the message in front of people. Maybe it's eight, ten, 
15 times, you say, well, look, we've talked to this person 15 times. They're not interested in buying our widget. So let's quit wasting money on advertising to that person, right? But most of those who purchase, and this, again, just talking about secular marketing world kind of stuff, they had to be touched several times with this message before it started to sink in they started to get it. And that same mindset is in play when you're talking about teaching things in the Lord's church. That need for repetition. We're just not as bright as we <laughs> maybe think we ought to be. And we have to hear things multiple times. And I know that's been the case in my life. You hear it a bunch of times. And then at some point, how many times have you ever said, you know, you said this to me and it clicked. It clicked. You've said this to me eight times and it never really dawned on me. But then there was that moment when it clicked. Well, that was the benefit of repetition. And somewhere you're mulling that over and thinking about it and considering it. Very beneficial. But that requires patience to do that. And um, so that's why the, the minister or the bishop must be patient. Not a, brawl, not a brawler, not covetous. Look, covetous is mentioned again. Not only not greedy of filthy lucre, also not covetous, right? So can't be wrapped up in the material world. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Now, this earlier said the husband of one wife, and some have taken this to say, well, you must be married to be an elder. I don't believe that is what that passage is saying. But I will say this. It's talking about if you are married, this is how the marriage should be. I will say this, though. If someone is not married and they're moving uh, toward the office of an elder, it makes it more difficult to assess whether or not he meets the criteria for an elder. Because it speaks specifically here of ruling his own house well and having his children in subjection with all gravity. That is a litmus test for his qualification. And if a man does not have a family... It's one of those tests that kind of gets taken off the table. You don't have this very evident display around him that kind of reads how he's ruling his own house. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? So it's an important thing to consider, and it makes the matter of considering an elder who someone for an elder position who is not married, much more difficult. And I think it's fairly rare. But um, at any rate, that's my take on it. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So it can't be someone who, you know, two weeks ago was in some other order. He came in and was miraculously uh, converted and took Old Baptist doctrine right down the line and we baptized him and two weeks later we're trying to make him an elder. Right? No, this is someone who is a novice and I think what is indicated here is that someone who is treated in this way is prone to being swept up in pride in the matter. So it's something that there must be some caution exhibited on the part of those who are examining elder candidates. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and snare of the devil. Again, this is his public attitude. So that is the office of bishop or elder, and that is an official role of service in the church. Most of the roles of service in the church are not official in that sense. They are unofficial, but incredibly important. They don't have a particular office associated with them, but they're still important nevertheless. 
Now he talks a little bit about deacons. And we mentioned that we have kind of a deacon gap here. So as we are thinking about this and, and as we continue in prayer on the matter of raising up deacons for the church, which by the way, I'm confident the Lord hears and will honor. We should commit ourselves to it. I don't doubt it for one minute. He's been too faithful to this church for too long for him to not be faithful to us in this matter. And by the way, he asked us to pray for it. So shame on us if we don't. And I'm looking forward to the blessing in all this and believe it is forthcoming. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre. You see, there's a lot of the same qualifications here in the matter of deacon. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And we'll talk a little bit about that mystery of the faith here in just a minute. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon. Again, it's a, an official thing, being found blameless. I know in secular work, it has often been my experience that the person who gets some office or some new job within a company is the person who kind of stepped up and started already doing that work. Like if you're working on a job site and that's a bunch of stuff's got to get done, you might have a lot of people who have skills. You might have some good carpenters and plumbers and, and uh, different types of artisans out there that are working. But that stuff has to be deftly coordinated in order for the project to go correctly. And a lot of times, someone will recognize this and they'll just step up and start saying, hey, look, I got to do this first. And before I put that drywall in, you need to get the electricity run through here. And, and they'll start doing that. Well, when the company says, we really need a, a new foreman for this job, that person is the likely candidate for that job because he's basically already doing it in some capacity. He's demonstrated that he's willing to serve, he recognizes the need, and he's stepping up to do it proactively, irrespective of whether or not he has the official title, just because he knows that it's needful. This has happened to me in the business world time and time again. This is whatever promotions I've received in my career have largely been based on that. I would see, here's something that needs to be done. I would just start doing it. And then when they said, well, that needs to be a full-time job. Maybe we ought to put Dan in that because he's already doing it, right? So I think this works in very much the same way. And I think a lot of times this proving of deacons, so to speak, is not some formal program where you go through where you say, well, you must do this and it's not like making a knight where you got to climb over a wall in, in, a, in armor and you got to, you know, be able to do sword fighting and we're going to run you through all these tests before we officially make you a knight. It's more of the sort, you know, are you serving? Are you apt to serve? Now, it said that the bishop should be apt to teach. That means they're inclined to teach. They have an unction to teach. And while this is not stated here, I think in spirit what this is saying is that they must be apt to serve. You see what I'm saying? They prove themselves. They are proven in that they show that they have an aptitude and a desire to want to serve in this way. And as often as not, the church ends up just officially recognizing what a person has already started stepping into and doing. So let these also first be proved and then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. See, these things are very similar to the qualifications for the elder or bishop. 
For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, he mentioned the mystery of godliness earlier, and that the deacons are to be those who hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. In other words, I believe these tenets of the Christian faith, and there's no wavering in it. My conscience is clear in it. Conscience being clear based on the testimony of what Christ has done, not based on some requisite level of service I've rendered. I have a clear conscience in the matter of my standing before God based on what Christ has done. That's the mystery that's in view here, and it defines this mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. You can't have a deacon or an elder that's saying, well, I don't really believe that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. Maybe God came down in some spiritual sense. This is becoming increasingly popular among people spiritualizing things. God was manifest in the flesh. That's a core tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ was the virgin-born Son of God. That's what it's saying. That the deacon must say, I believe that. That was a miracle from God. It's core to the gospel. I believe it. And that's where my hope is. Justified in the Spirit. Christ declared righteous, fulfilling the demands of the covenant. That's something he did in, in allegiance to and in obedience to his father. He was always about his father's business. And his life was such that justified him as the virgin-born son of God, spotless lamb of God. Seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. They have to be men who believe core tenets of the Christian faith. You can't just say, well, you know, this guy's real handy. He can do all kinds of stuff. He can fix the roof and he can, uh, he can redo the plumbing and rewire the building's electricity and he can do all those things. The only problem is he just doesn't believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God who came in the flesh. He thinks God, well, God is it's just kind of spiritual and this story about Jesus was just a, it's just an allegory that teaches us some moral lessons. That person can't be a deacon. See, it's not about that. It's not about just your job skills for serving and keeping up the facility. It's a spiritual matter first and foremost and they must have, they must hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. So these are all good and needful things. It's good that we've kind of looked through this. If we're going to be praying about deacons, we should have this on our minds and be mindful of it. I assume we'll get the opportunity to, to examine people in the days and weeks to come, years to come, however God chooses to fulfill uh, on our prayer request. But those are the things we have to keep in mind as we do that. As we close here, let's look at a couple of things. First of all, service is greatness. Matthew chapter 23. We don't think of it in this way. We think service is, yeah, servants. Yeah, I got servants. They, they come and they, you know, clean out stuff that I don't want to touch and they're lowly and and I'm servants is what you hire other people to do. It's all the gross stuff you don't want to do. They're not great. They're just servants. 
It's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Maybe how it works at work. Maybe how it works on television. It's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. This is not a thing where you enter into this thinking, wow, if I, if I serve in this way, I want to become a deacon and I've become a deacon and now I'm serving and this raises my station among people because a deacon is an elevated office then in the eyes of men. Well, that's not how it works. The idea is I'm going to humble myself and be a servant. I'm going to serve God. And it doesn't matter if anybody's taking notice of it or not, because I'm not serving the eyes of men. I'm serving God in the matter. Ironically, when done properly, this is something that God Himself honors and recognizes. That humbling of self and serving of God even when no one's looking. I'm telling you, the deacons in our church over the years have done a lot of service to God where nobody was looking. They're up here doing stuff nobody even knows about. They just see that it needs to be done. And they don't say, well, you know, I kind of wish somebody else would do that. That's kind of a nasty job. I'd go work on the that fixed the toilets in the, in the men's room. That's kind of a nasty job. I wish somebody else would do that. I'm a deacon. Can't I get somebody else to do that? Well, deacon just means servant. And people who are deaconing, if I can use it in that way, doing that properly are people who know I'm serving God. It doesn't matter if anybody in this church sees anything that I have done. And I'm telling you, the, the men that I know that have done that have done it with delight. They do it and they're proud to do it. And I'm thankful for it. I'm, I, I appreciate their example. The verse before that one, but he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. That is one of the most contrary ideas to American society that you could come up with. How are you going to be great? Well, I'm going to start a tech firm and I'm going to be a multi-billionaire and I'm going to build electric cars and shoot them into space on rockets that I made when I'm not working on a brain implant to help you become a computer. Wow, that's great. Totally different from the kingdom of God. The greatest among you shall be your servant. So I invite us to think about that. And then finally, as we close, it's something we can do now. I talked about a deacon gap. Deacon means servant. And there is an office of deacon. There is an official office of deacon in the church. But the term just means servant. And really, everyone should be a deacon in the lowercase d sense. We should all be serving in whatever capacity we can. And it's a now thing. Have you ever thought about this? We've had lots of conversations and sermons among the old Baptists on conditional time salvation. Have you ever thought about your service as a form of conditional time salvation? Your service to the church or to others in the church could be an instrument of deliverance or salvation to them in the temporal affairs of their life. If they're sick, they can't mow their grass, you go over there and take care of it, you have delivered them temporally from the burden of having to do that work. If they can't prepare food and you made some meals for them and took it over there, you didn't have to publish that to the church. You just saw it needed to be done and you did it and you took it over there. Nobody knew anything about it except you and the person. 
the greatest among you will be your servant. See that? But it's a now thing. And you may be someone who's saying, I don't know that I'm, that I intend to be an official deacon. You may be a, you may be a woman. Women are not permitted to hold the official role of deacon in the church. That's a controversial statement in our time, but it's the truth. That doesn't mean, however, that women do not serve and cannot serve, or that they should put the matter of service to the side. And we have women in this church who serve tremendously. But think of it as something to do now, not something to do later. While we're going to pray for deacons to be raised up in the official sense, I also want us to pray that we would get involved in deaconing, lowercase d, and serving the church in a variety of different ways that don't have anything to do with filling that office. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, this was a life verse for our family several years ago. And this is kind of the guiding principle. Withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. You'll have opportunities to serve others and serve the church that are just set right before you. It'll be in the power of your hands to do it. You'll think, I need to do this. I need to make this meal. I need to make this phone call. I need to reach out to this brother. This person's struggling. I need to try to help them. I'm going to send them a verse that I read this morning because that speaks to what they were telling me was a problem going on in their life. This type of service to one another, when it is within the power of your hand to do it, don't get wrapped up scrolling through Facebook and say, I'll do that later because it just disappears. When you have that unction to serve one another, just do it. It's in the power of your hand, just do it. Don't squander those opportunities. Don't think, well, nobody's going to see it, so I won't get credit for it. (laughs) Hopefully none of you would think that way, but we're prideful and we think about things like that. Just do it. The Lord is watching. The Lord honors that service. And whoever is greatest among you will be your servant. Say not unto thy neighbor, go, And come again, and tomorrow I will give thee when thou hast it by thee. Don't put it off. Don't put it off. When you see opportunities to serve one another, take those opportunities to do it now. It can be an instrument of deliverance in the lives of others, a great source of salvation in the here and now in temporal circumstances. I pray that's an encouragement to you. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.